Kia ora welcome to the panel on International Friday afternoon and it's lovely to have your company with me uh, this afternoon. Alan McElroy and Andrew Clay with me, Wallace Chapman, this afternoon. This first, Auckland mayoral candidate Leo Malloy has withdrawn from the race, conceding he cannot win. Cowboys don't cry. I'm getting on with my other life as a hospo legend. This comes on the same day as a poll showing Leo Malloy dropping to third place. He said today he was mortified when he saw the result last night, quoting, we just didn't see it coming. He emerged to answer the media's questions at 3pm this afternoon. Here's what he had to say. I think... I've made it pretty clear all along to all members of the campaign committee that our program was always based around polls, so it's a month-by-month program, and we've been lucky enough to poll well almost every step of the way for a variety of different reasons and different ways. Back in November when we did our first poll, we had a very high dislike factor, but we still had recognition. Um, as time's gone by, the recognition factor's gone up, the dislike factor's gone down. And we've always been able to assure people who are supporters that we would continue to poll strongly. And if we didn't, we would reasonably expect that they had the right to step away and I would reconsider my position. And that's what happened last night. Wayne Brown jumps to second place behind FSO Collins. Uh, Leo Malloy drew attention to himself on Guy Williams' TV show, which was liberally sprinkled with insults. With us is former mayor of Auckland, twice. John Banks, greetings to you. Uh, You too, Wallace. Greetings to you. Well, the Auckland mayoralty is certainly idiosyncratic, and the only time that a centre-left candidate or a centre-right candidate has a good run at it is on two occasions I had a good run at it because I had centre-left people splitting the vote everywhere Uh and I was able to come through the middle. And you see, uh, there's no show of a centre-right candidate beating the one centre-left candidate uh, in this mayoralty unless Leo, and he's gone, and good on him for that, was sound and sensible and quite brave. And I believe other centre-right candidates should throw in the towel as well, and then they might be able to save the sinking ship Auckland by getting a good run at the mayoralty. But a straight run at the mayoralty between six candidates on the centre-right and one Labour candidate is doomed to failure. All right, so in terms of the makeup now, what, uh, what can you predict happen? Well, uh, well, what happened is there was no pathway forward for Leo. I mm. saw it coming, and uh, we talked about it often and again early this morning, and good on him. Uh, he cares about Auckland more than he cares about the Auckland mayoralty. There just wasn't an opportunity for him. There's not an opportunity for most of the other centre-right candidates, but all they can do is spoil the opportunity to change the direction of Auckland and uh, by putting up one candidate. Wayne Brown on his own against uh, Alfiso Collins on his own, Wayne Brown would win every day of the week. Uh, He would be a better candidate and he'd make a better mayor and he would turn the sinking ship Auckland around. But the Labour Party in Auckland have a big ground game to come. They play the ground game of Auckland local politics better than anyone else and they will harvest up the votes uh, because it's postal voting like you've never seen before. So the run to the line for Wayne Brown is still very difficult because there's so many candidates on the centre-right that are just spoiling. My right. advice this afternoon, Wallace, is that they should throw in the towel, three or four of them, and let Wayne Brown 
who is the preferred candidate right through all the polling, have a clear run with Alfiso Collins okay. and let the best men win. OK, here you go. We've got John Banks uh, clearly uh, preferencing uh, Wayne Brown here. Now, John, we've got a panel with us. Can they just jump in with a thought or a question? Sure. Yeah, sure. Andrew. Yeah, John, i just got a question for you. Um, you say there's no f- way forward for Leo Malloy, and I've got no allegiance either way, but 45% undecided? Isn't that an early call to, to pull out with that a huge number of undecideds? Oh, that's a very, very good question. Uh, one of the problems we have with these polls that many of the undecided are certainly decided that they're not going to vote because we're lucky, we're going to be lucky to put on the record to get a 40% turnout this election. So most of the undecided will be, will be people that won't vote. But bear in mind, I have a lot of experience in this, and the undeciders that do vote will fall in favour of this polling as the nominations close today a couple of months out. They will fall in favour, Andrew. So right. you won't see a lot of movement there. OK, right. Um, Alan? Uh, <clears throat> I had a very good question, but Andrew asked it yeah. uh, instead of me, so <laughs> I didn't get that far. Thanks, Andrew. I I've, I, I know it's, he, he backed out quite early. I was surprised by that. Uh, I, where did the polls come from? Like, I've never been asked my opinion. So okay. where's, where are the polls coming from? Oh, that's true. There's 1.6 million people in Auckland, and um, uh, they all get polled. And one of the fallacies and problems with the polling, Wallace, is they poll people. They might as well poll my daughter in Byron Bay in Australia because she's not going to vote in the Auckland mayoral election. And so you can you should only be polling people that have voted twice, and you'd get a better poll. But I think the polls are pretty accurate. I found in my mayoralty runs, and I had hmm. three, There's two things I should tell you. I found in my mayoralty runs that the polls were pretty accurate. And the other thing is, these are very expensive. Having a run at the Auckland mayoralty is expensive. I can share with you privately that Leo would have spent about $600,000 of his own money to date. Wow. In my my three runs at the Auckland mayoralty, I spent $1.1 million of my own money over three mayoralties. And Wayne Brown... Wayne Brown, the front runner for the centre right, is going to have to spend another three fifty to five hundred thousand on polling to take away the support and uh, and the tidal wave uh, for the Labour Party candidate Alfiso Collins. We're staring in the face today of another Labour mayor for Auckland. I think it. I don't like it. Wayne Brown would do an excellent job, uh, but he can't win when the votes are being split always every way. John, I've got to come back and say, uh, John Banks, look at the great things that are happening in what you used to call the world's greatest CBD Auckland. Great things are happening. There's movement, there's progress. There's a rail link that you, John Banks, can jump on and ride to your heart's content. It's going to be a fantastic city, is it not? Oh, I think the potential's great. And I've lived here most of my life, except for a stint in Wangarei, which I loved. Uh, it's a fantastic city. When David Hay and I handed over the Auckland, uh, Auckland city to the super city structure, when we left the mayoralty and handed it across, Auckland had net no debt. Auckland city had net no debt. The whole of Greater Auckland today has $12.8 billion in structural debt. Uh, We are indebted. We're almost broke. Uh, We spend money like there's no tomorrow. 
uh, and there's no it's, structure. It's, 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 we, hedging up, it's hedging up for the future, John. That money is hedging ourselves and protecting ourselves for the future. Infrastructure needed to happen. But this is a whole other um, debate, John. <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> um, there's but, a good point. I tell, I tell you what is a good point, Wallace, I need to leave you with. Sure. Uh, local democracy was taken away when we formed the super city. The super city hasn't worked that well. Okay. I, I, was, a pro- I was a promoter of it. Uh, I was an advocate for it. And I was uh, a cheerleader. It hasn't worked that well. And I'm not going to sheet home blame to every mayor. But what I'm going to say to you is is um, we need more local democracy. We have to have the devolution of decision-making back into the grassroots where the footpaths need filling, the lawns, the berms need mowing, and the rubbish bins need emptying. The berms are mowed and block. The berms are mowed and blockhouse bay. John Banks, don't you worry about <laughs> that. Lovely to have you on the program. And actually, we might pick up on that next week uh, with the, the super city. Now it's a mayoral time. The super city is actually a good model because I see that uh, that issue has been talked about in Ōtutahi Christchurch as well. Should um, Christchurch become a super city? Anyway, it's sixteen past four. That was uh, former mayor. Of twice at John Banks there, and needless to say, uh, quite a bit of response coming through that. If you're a regular flyer, chances are you've recently been snagged by a cancellation or rescheduling, and sadly, it probably won't be the last time. Air New Zealand today has announced it'll operate at a reduced schedule for the next six months, meaning that up to 100,000 travellers with bookings in place could have their plans changed. Have you been one of them? Get in touch. Text me, 2101. With us is independent aviation industry commentator Irene King. Kia ora, Irene. Kia ora. Just how did it come to this? Well, you've got a number of things going on. You've got um, really high demand and you've got an industry that's that's recovering, so it's trying to to ramp up in the best way that it can. And then you've got, on top of that, um, some pretty severe staff shortages, which um, are, are based around some pretty key skilled people. And it's really hard to, to just um, fill all those gaps to... to really need to afford demand. Mm. Sherry, bring in our um, panellists. I want to ask you, Sherry, in the panel, uh, have you either, you get around the country quite a bit, have you been affected by cancellations? Yeah, it was. In the, in the had a gig in near north of Wellington a week or two back when all the weather hit. And I understand that. You can't, that's yeah. not the airline's fault. So I, I get that. But, you know, I think we should all be aware if it's something that they've got wrong, regardless of, of being understaffed and stuff like that, you promise a service and if you don't deliver it yeah. in any other industry, you'd be expecting to give a refund or something to do it. So 100% they should be doing it. And Irene? yeah, we have. Irene? Yes. Um, in terms of the refund, in terms of the rights, what else can you tell us about a consumer's rights when it comes to, okay, so you've missed a flight. What um, does Air New Zealand or any other airline ensure that you, uh, that you have? Right. So it, it is quite complicated because if your flight's delayed through sort of acts of God, then the, the airline doesn't have to refund. But if it's caused by staff shortages, and I think this is what's driving, you know, Air New Zealand's reassessment of schedules, then um, consumers are entitled to up to um, 10 times the, the level of um, value of the disrupt. And, and that can be quite a large number. 
particularly when you multiply it through by the level of disruptions as well. So they are up for some fairly large compensation, and that's got nothing to do with um, refunding your ticket. It's yep. just straight compensation. Did you say? Did you say ten times? Yeah, ten wow. times. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Okay, I mean, I, I don't. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I don't okay. need that amount. Just give me my money back. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I find frustrating is that they tell you you have to log in and apply for a refund. You're not given it automatically. It's come down to admin again. You have to put the work in. And if you're being a sceptic, you'd think, let's make it as awkward as possible to get our money back. Exactly, so yeah. a certain percentage of people go, oh, I can't be bothered. It's and they get to keep out. it. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's a word feel. If I'm being sceptical. Yes, I understand here. Uh, I'm looking at this under the Civil Civil Aviation Act, Irene. If an airline cancels or delays your domestic flight for reasons within its control, you are entitled to reimbursement of up to 10 times the cost of the ticket or the actual cost of delay, whichever is lower. So um, that's, I mean, that would be something that many uh, wouldn't know. So it's incumbent upon you to actually contact the airlines. Did you know know that, Alan? No idea. Um, good information to have, Irene. Yeah, look, I've talked about this for a long, long time. Aviation is quite different from other modes of transport where you can be delayed, disrupted, and you're not entitled to any compensation. But with aviation, there has always been this really special provision that if the airlines do it, then you're up to you're entitled to ten times the value of the ticket, or you know whatever your costs are. The the key point here, of course, is that no one knew too much about it, and so there were never many claims. But, of course, now, ah. um, and I think they have for many years disrupted because of insufficient staff. I don't think this is a new issue, but I just think the costs now are, are, are prohibitive. And, you know, um, consumers are more savvy. Yeah, Nick says here, New Zealand flight in the morning at 8.15, text comes through at 10pm the night before, saying mm. cancelled. Trying to rebook me five days later is just ridiculous. Irene, that kind of is symbolic of the um, real frustration of many. Imagine that. You're looking forward to a break. 8.15am uh, is your flight. You get a text at 10pm the night before. Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, I think I've heard some real horror stories in this area where they might cancel and say, well, of course you can rebook the next day, but it's going to cost you $300 more. Now, I just think that's outrageous. You know, there should be a duty here on the airline to provide a suitable alternative. And yes, it can be challenging. I fully accept that. But really, it's no challenging no different from any other industry who who have these problems. You know, if you if you cancel, then then you still have to deliver the service because you've got the money. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Really good to have you on, Irene Kiara. Thank you. Uh, that is Irene King, an independent aviation industry commentator, and just looking at the Consumer NZ. Uh, uh, release about this same issue. Um, Consumer NZ says that if the airline offers you another flight but the time doesn't suit, ask for a refund. You can also claim reimbursement for any additional costs up to a limit you reasonably occur. Now, that includes the cost of accommodation, meals, and any additional costs you incur getting to your destination. 
Wow. So we did a good service today, letting people know. <laughs> I hope my flights get cancelled next so, week. They're going to be loaded. <laughs> There's two things about that, though. Like, first of all, the airlines will be shuddering hearing this become more public. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and worrying about it. But the other thing is, don't offer a service that you can't reasonably to expect yeah. to deliver most sure. of the time. You, you know, you're, you're happy to take the money. Oh, then the third thing is, I can see this is... is as I've said before, you can claim all these things, but you can guarantee there'll be a million forms you have to fill out. Yeah, It'll yeah. be log in first. They'll make it as awkward as possible, as many clicks as possible. Got to have all your but ID have a go. and all that have stuff. Have a go. Oh, always have a go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ten times. Yeah. Uh, Linda says, I-, I drove an hour and a half through rush hour traffic to be told I was on standby and had no seat. They had overbooked. There were no weather issues that week. I was incensed and I swore and then my treatment really went downhill. No one told me my rights. After everyone was boarded, I demanded a seat and there were two more spare after I was allowed on. Oh, the stress. Yeah, 100%. It's awful. Uh, Well, they're coming through now. 24 past four. Lovely to have your company today. Thank you very much for listening. Alan McElroy and uh, Andrew Clay. You were worried. Didn't yeah. come. Oh, my face sometimes does that to people. No, like, it's just you're blank. I I'm, get it. Was. I'm just thinking of the booking error. <laughs> it's still actually blowing my mind. So heads yeah. are gonna roll. Heads are gonna roll. There they are. Uh, Twenty four <laughs> past four. A new. S- <laughs> Come on, professional broadcaster. Well, let's hold it together, mate. Sure. Yep. A new strategy in numeracy and literacy was released today by the government. It says that the reading and maths should, uh, curriculum should be taught consistently across all schools. The strategy, Heroukura Moa Te Mokapuna, will also ensure that teachers are well supported to deliver teaching. Why all this? Well, New Zealand's performance in reading and maths has plunged over the past 20 years in local and international surveys. With us is Dr. Owen Johnston, classroom teacher and literacy researcher. Dr. Johnson, kia ora. What do you make of this? Is it going to help resolve this very real issue we have of literacy and numeracy, this latest um, uh, announcement? I've been teaching all day and it came out this morning. I had a quick read of it at lunchtime and am still going through it. Although initial impressions, here comes more ideology from the government. It is a shift, but it is still not addressing the key issues facing classroom teachers. Yeah, and that's why we got you on as a person. So you've been teaching all day. Um, How significant is this issue in the classroom? What do you see with the young people that you work with? It is a huge issue in my class and like every other teacher in this country, we're saying, hey, we're doing the best we can, but we have been trained in a faulty pedagogy. I have been teaching for 40 years. The last time we were at the top of the world in literacy was in 1970, and they were 14-year-olds. We've changed the way we teach. And now it's more than 20 years that the data has been in decline. Teachers are doing their very, very best Mm, We're getting the best that we can out of children, but it's the way we teach that's faulty. Oh, okay. So it's the style of learning. Can I just – we have a panel here that I want to ask a question. One thing that has been raised on the panel before, and actually um, more senior listeners will recognise this because, hey, that's the way we taught, and that's phonics or phonetic reading. Is that a part of it? It's a part of it. It is. 
There's the science of learning. And under that comes the science of reading. And so this is how, yes, part of it is phonics, but there's more to it than that. There's phonemic awareness, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. It's the same but very different. Mm. It is the research evidence coming in from multiple disciplines, and it's been coming at us for 50 years now. We've what? had people like, sorry. No, well, well, how, how has this happened? I, I don't understand because over all that 20, 20 years, 30 years, we've had different governments and all the rest of it. How do they, why haven't we stuck to one thing that worked? Why is, are they just trying to make it better and they've got doing, trying to make it better, they've made it worse? I don't understand. I would have thought, I know we get more knowledge about how people learn all the rest of it. But why all this flip-flops in different ways? It seems to me as an occasional observer, every few years there's a new initiative, a new way of doing things. And I understand tweaking things, but how how, how has this happened? Oh, why has it happened? Um, very much more child-centred teaching, um, and that came after the war. You know, we had to, it was much more social constructivist. And it hasn't flip-flopped. There's been this thing called whole language, where... They looked at the work of um, Kenneth Goodman, who said, immerse a child in a language-rich environment and they will learn to read. Well, it works for some children, for quite a few, to be fair, but it doesn't work for all. Okay. And they've actually taken the work of, of Chomsky and got it wrong, because, he, yes, oral language is like that. We as humans are designed to learn to speak. We are not designed to learn to read. And now we have things, fMRIs, we know how the brain learns to read. It wasn't that many years ago that we had to cut someone's skull open after they died to look and see what the brain was doing. Now we've got more information and we've tried to tweak things when actually we need to take this new information, all this empirical scientific evidence, not just evidence, all of the scientific empirical evidence and say what we actually need to change the way we're doing things radically. Yeah, we need to change somehow, considering the rates. I'll just get Ellen to jump in with a uh, comment or a thought. So some of those different ways of teaching uh, when they were introduced, were they more experimental or based on studies? They're based on studies, on evidence, but it's what do you call evidence? The fact that sitting down with a child for 20 minutes a day Mm. will improve the reading of some children. We do that. We bring grandparents into school. And for some children, that's a huge success. Yeah. Okay. But I'm looking at large-scale studies that we end up with scientific statistical data that shows us it's actually making a difference in a lot of different environments. It's such an interesting topic, uh, uh, Dr. Johnson. I wish we could continue this because uh, it's, it's a sort of isn't it? it's a sort yeah. of topic that we could actually go quite deep. We might sort of come back to it on the panel. But for now, though, um, kia ora, thank you for your time. That's uh, Dr. Owen Johnson, their literacy researcher. I, I'm so fascinated by how young people start to learn to read. I, I love reading. I absolutely love it, but I can't recall if I was any good at it 
when I was seven or eight or six. Can you recall? Other of well, you can. My, my, both my parents were teachers. My mum, in particular, was um, all range of from deaf to uh, educationally handicapped, emotionally, you know, all all different spectrums. And she's told me I learned to read off Sesame Street. Really? I don't remember it. But yeah. I learned to read really? Off yeah. How? Uh, well, a one, uh, 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 two. That's uh, counting. You well, got that wrong for the start. See, right, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm supposed to be about I don't know. Reading. I guess I just casually watched Sesame Street and learned to read. That's what she told me. Gosh, what about you, yeah. Alan? Uh, I'm I'm weird when it comes to that. Like I could read uh, when I was asked to read a chapter, stand up in class. I could read it. Yeah. But if I was to sit down and look at a book, I can't figure. I can't do. I'd really. Ha- Focus hard to this day. To this day, so I've never read a book. But that's more of a concentration thing. Though, I think it? it's more concentration yeah, yeah. than anything else. So, uh, so yeah, but I, I don't know how differently kids are learning now. I'd I know there's more distractions, but uh, I'd love to go back in time and actually look at myself reading and learning to read. And how how did I, I can't do remember. it? How yeah, I, I, don't, I, do I don't recall. I just suddenly could read. Yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't. like bedtime stories. Yeah, I got vague got, memories yeah. of, of. Yeah, that. I got yeah. read to a lot, and you know, and had you know, teachers for parents, 